Mark chapter 5. We are continuing in the Missio Christi series. This one is called Renew, part one. Spirit-led intentionality. Spirit-led intentionality. We're going to be taking a few weeks to look at this story in Mark chapter one, where Jesus deals with a demon-possessed man. We're just going to take our time here and explore some of the concepts. We want to learn what we can from this passage about Jesus, about people, about mission, and about demons. But before we get to demons in the weeks to come, we want to just see something very simple about the way that Jesus did mission from the text this morning. And though it's very simple, it is something that is missing from a lot of our lives. We'll discover it in a moment. I want us to read 20 verses right now, Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. We're really just going to be dealing with the concept in the first verse, but I want us to have the background because we're going to explore this passage for a few weeks. Mark 5, verse 1 says, And they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs, in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? The man said to Jesus, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated Jesus saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and observe the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat Jesus to depart from their region. So as he was getting into the boat, The man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. But Jesus didn't let him. He said to him, go home to your people and report to them 
what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus, we marvel at you this morning. For you have done great things for us, Lord. We deserve so little and you've given us so much. God, your grace toward us is astounding. Your kindness is overwhelming. Lord, we marvel at you this morning and what you have done for us. We ask that you would continue a deep work in us, Lord, that you would send us to our people to witness, to testify of your goodness and your power that we would tell this community that you are the king at whose name and presence demons tremble, in whose face evil flees and is afraid. We ask that King Jesus, you would begin to exert your authority in our lives and in our community in a new way. We ask that evil would be routed and put on the run, set on its heels that darkness would be pushed back and the light would come into our cities. We ask that your gospel, which has made us brand new, would be obvious in us and through us. You do a deep work in us now and Lord, we would ask together that you would please anoint me to communicate your truth, that I would be faithful to your word and for your glory. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We as people are intentional about so many things. We're intentional about our recreation. Very intentional about our recreation. Yesterday, I took my family to the beach. Woke up in the morning, saw what a beautiful day it was. Kate and I stepped out in our backyard and said, oh, we're going to the beach. We called some friends. We said, we'll meet you down there at 11 a.m. And so we had to get ready. And when you got kids, you know, and you're going to the beach, at least when they're my kids, you got to be super intentional because they got a ton of stuff. Each of the kids has a boogie board. Each of the kids has a skim board. Isaiah also has a surfboard. I had a surfboard and I brought an extra surfboard for myself. Kate has surfboards and we took a kayak. <laughs> Two umbrellas, three beach chairs, five towels, and a lunch, two coolers. <laughs> we wanted to have fun, and in order to accomplish that, we had to be incredibly intentional. We're intentional about our recreation. We're very intentional about our finances, aren't we? We plot, and we plan, and we measure, and we budget. Very intentional about our finances to make it work. We're intentional about our relationships. And the things we say, don't say, where we go, where we don't go. If you're a good husband, you're intentional about saying kind things to your wife and doing kind things for her. We're, we're intentional about recreation and finances and relationships. We're intentional about so many things because we need to be to pull them off. But very few of us are intentional about mission. Very few of us are intentional about living life on mission. And what we see about Jesus 
is that he lived with missional intentionality. Missional intentionality. Jesus was intentional in going after this man. He knew this man was there. And he knew that no one else had been able to help this man. It's described in verses three and four. That they couldn't even subdue him. And that word subdue in the Greek is a word that would be used to try to subdue a wild beast. They couldn't subdue this man. They couldn't keep him in shackles, chained up. That means that there had been an utter failure to do anything else. And even their last resort, just chaining the dude up, was failing. For this man, his family had failed him. His friends had failed him. Whatever religion he knew, it had failed him. Social services had failed him. His whole community had failed him. Nobody knew what to do with this man. But Jesus knew he was there. Jesus knew that this man was desperate. And we need to know that there are people like this where we live. There are people like this in our community. It might not be the same exact problem, but people that nobody else knows what to do with. Their friends have failed them, families failed them, religion has failed them, the church has failed them, social services aren't cutting it, the community has abandoned them, pushed them to the side. There are people like this around us, people that only Jesus can help. The good news is that Jesus came looking He came to seek and to save people just like this. Jesus was and is very intentional about going after very desperate people, people that nobody else can get to. He went after the woman at the well who had been ostracized by her peers. She was there at the well all by herself. He went after Zacchaeus who was ostracized by his countrymen, himself being a traitor, And now he's going after this demon-possessed man who lived nearby, but not in the same neighborhood per se. Catch that. This demon-possessed man who lived nearby, but not in the same neighborhood per se. It wasn't far. It was just to the other side of the lake, but it was pretty culturally removed for Jesus and the disciples. For the disciples, going to the other side of the lake and encountering this man in his condition was way outside their comfort zone. You see, the place where Jesus and the disciples frequently inhabited was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It was predominantly a Jewish region. But now they've gone to the east side of the Sea of Galilee where the population is more mixed. There was a Jewish population, but there was also a larger Gentile population. But more than the population, the culture itself was different from the northwest side. On the east side, it was primarily a Hellenistic or Greek culture. That means that it was a pagan culture. Cross over the lake, pagan culture. This side, Jewish culture. That side, pagan culture. In fact, that side, the region known as Decapolis, it mentions in verse 20, it means in the Greek, the ten cities. That side and those cities became in that day a showcase for Hellenistic or Greek culture and ideals. A showcase for paganism that was antithetical to Judaism. So for the boys to cross the lake was outside their comfort zone. And everything about this situation and scenario and this guy 
were unclean from the perspective of the disciples. Unclean, that's a big deal in Judaism. Everything about this scenario was unclean. The fact that he dwelt among the tombs made him unclean from the perspective of the Jew. The Old Testament said that anybody who came in contact with the dead body and then didn't ritually purify himself was to be cut off from his people. Big deal, cut off from the people, put out, removed from community. The rabbis, as they had a proclivity to do, added to that and said, well, it's not just coming in contact with dead bodies, but if you come in contact with anything that the dead body came in contact with, then you're ritually impure. You're defiled. So the bed that they died in, the house that they died in, the tomb that they lay in. So from the Jewish perspective, the fact that this guy hung out in the graveyard meant that he was persona non grata. Don't touch, don't go near. You don't want to become ritually impure. In addition to this, there were swine herds in the area and swine herders in the area. And we all know that the Old Testament had said, bacon is a no-go, right? That the Old Testament had declared swine to be unclean. And the Mishnah, the oral law, then added to that and said, it's not only not okay to eat pig, but it's not okay to raise pigs. Anybody that raises pigs is sinning against the law, the oral tradition said. Now, the people who ruled the land during the day were the Romans. Romans occupied Israel during the time. And the Romans loved meat. If they could get their hands on some meat, they would love to eat it. Pig meat was wonderful. So if the swine herders that were there on the east side of the Sea of Galilee were raising those pigs and and using them to supply the Roman occupiers with pork, then the raising of the unclean food for the occupiers was a double offense. It was doubly offensive to these Jewish men who accompanied Jesus to the east side. What we see here is that Jesus went after and took his disciples to a man with an unclean spirit living among among unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations, all in an unclean pagan Gentile area. Now, it's hard for us to see the profundity of that because most of us aren't Jewish and don't want to adhere to the law. So we don't really get that thing of how it was such a big deal for them. But we must confess that we all have conceptions of unclean. We all have somewhere in us people, neighborhoods, scenarios, lifestyles that we want nothing to do with. In effect, we declare them unclean. They might not be in our neighborhood, but they're not too far away. We don't really want anything to do with their scenario, their situation, their habits, their attitude, whatever it is. We have our own conceptions of what is unclean. Jesus drags his boys right into the midst of it. And for them, it was a new experience. It wasn't far off, but it was brand new, a brand new experience to be encountering this. It was a new and different sort of interaction, and it was way outside their social comfort zone. Now, what we need to get theologically is this. 
That God is in the process of making all things new. Big theological important point. God is in the process of making all things new. Revelation chapter 21 is the end game. Verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea, meaning any separation between peoples. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there's not going to be any more death, There's not going to be any more mourning or crying or even pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God is in the process of making all things new. The end of all things is renewal. That's what God is doing and will do. God is setting and will set everything right that has gone wrong. And though that reality in its ultimate form is future, not yet, it is also present or already. It's a future reality. It's it's not yet here, but it is also present and already. Since the first time that Jesus came, He has been busy about the process of renewal. And many of us are the evidence of that. We're the evidence of that process and that goal of renewal. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. New things have come. When we're in Christ, newness comes. The kingdom is made manifest in the here and now. It is present. It is already. New things have come. The fullness of the kingdom that is future is displayed and foreshadowed in a foretaste of the renewing of men and women by the cross and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to accomplish that, Christ made another sort of crossing. To renew us, he had to make another sort of crossing. He intentionally crossed the divide between heaven and earth. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, one translator says. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Initiated by the crossing into flesh and blood and consummated at the cross in his flesh and blood being broken and spilled, Christ has made us who were as this man enslaved to sin in the devil. In this crossing and in the cross, Christ has made us brand new. 
and he has set us free. If you've been made brand new, can I hear an amen? Amen. And Jesus did this intentionally. Driven by love and compassion that is God. Driven by mercy and justice. Christ did this intentionally. And we see this intentionality in this story. Now, if Jesus is our model for mission and for missional intentionality, then what does it look like for the church, for you and me, to be the same? Jesus is our model. He was missionally intentional. What does it look like for us to be missionally intentional? Well, it looks like the book of Acts. You see, the book of Acts is a record of the first 30 years of the Holy Spirit leading brand new creations into Christ's mission of renewal. The book of Acts is a record of the first 30 years of the Holy Spirit leading brand new creations into Christ's mission of renewal in the world. What we can say is that there is no participation in the Missio Christi, the mission of Christ, without the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's testimony of the book of Acts. There is no participation in Christ's mission without the leading of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus told his new creations, don't even attempt to engage in mission until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Don't even try to do it. Don't even try to witness until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There is no participation in the Missio Christi without the leading of the person of the Holy Spirit. So we then, who are endeavoring to live on mission, have to come to understand our lives on mission as being spirit-led intentionality. Spirit-led missional intentionality. Because every act of renewal, the foretaste and the foreshadows of the fullness of the kingdom, every act of renewal is initiated, led, and accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Initiated, led, and accomplished by the Holy Spirit. That's a testimony of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we see Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He then preaches that Pentecost sermon, and 3,000 people were made new that day. In the book of Acts, in chapter 8, Philip was told by the Spirit to go to Gaza and then to approach a certain chariot that was passing by. And there he found a man who was reading the scriptures but couldn't understand them. So he explained the scriptures to the man and the man was converted that day. In the book of Acts chapter 10, we see the gospel go to a whole new group of people Because Peter heard the Spirit tell him that there were three men outside his house waiting to take him to some people to tell the gospel to. In the book of Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas go on mission because the Holy Spirit called them during a church worship service. 
in Acts chapter 16. We see that Paul would go to certain places and testify about Jesus and would not go to other places and testify about Jesus because of how the Holy Spirit would lead him. So the testimony of the early church is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were told by the Holy Spirit. They heard the Spirit. The Spirit called them and the Spirit would lead them. The early witnesses to Jesus were very intentional, but they were very spirit-led. And we now, as modern witnesses to Jesus, the current manifestation of the church, we are to be led by the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit, and we are to continually be filled with the Spirit. Led by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. And so, as we endeavor to live life on mission, it is imperative, it is absolutely necessary that we learn to hear the Spirit. Being led by, walking with, filled by, we need to learn to hear what the Spirit has to say. The difference between hearing the Spirit and not hearing the Spirit is the difference between fruitfulness and frustration. It's the difference between fruitfulness and frustration. Now, as we're living our lives on mission, there are certain times and instances where being on mission is kind of a no-brainer. There's just certain moments in life where you come across somebody who's in need. They're they're right there in front of you. They're in your life and and there's a need for the Lord and you've been equipped to meet that need. And it's just kind of a no-brainer. Like, yeah, this is being on mission. I'm gonna do this thing. No-brainer. There are other times where your brain is of no help to you whatsoever. (laughs) I heard a story from a family in our church recently who was driving down the road and they were going over an overpass here in our community, over the 101. And as they were going across the overpass, there was a young man sitting on that overpass on the curb just sitting there and they drove past him. And once they got past, the dad said to his family, something wasn't right with that kid. Something wasn't right, maybe we should... And, And the daughter... The daughter chimed in and said, yeah, dad, something wasn't right with that kid. I think the Spirit's telling us, let's go back. And the family hung a U-turn, pulled up to this kid and said, hey, are you okay? Kid said, no, I'm gonna kill myself. The kid said, I've been sitting on this bridge getting ready to jump off. But I was hoping that somebody would notice. And I counted 78 cars go by. And nobody noticed. But you stopped. And because that family heard the Spirit and obeyed, they prevented the loss of a life that is precious to God. What is at stake in hearing the Holy Spirit? Everything. Nobody else could help him. He was like this guy. Nobody else was willing to help. 78 cars. 
the one family heard the voice of the Spirit and obeyed. Jesus knew that kid was on the bridge. Jesus knew the kid was there. Jesus had compassion on him, was waiting on high to have compassion on him. But, but, but the weird thing about God is that throughout history, God has chosen to work through people, not independent of people. And, and because the mission of Christ is just that, Christ's mission and not our own, it's not the church's mission. Because the mission of Christ is Christ's mission, that means that Christ knows what he wants to do. Christ knows what he wants to do. And the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16.7. And Jesus, when speaking about the Holy Spirit, said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me because he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The mission that we're engaged in is glorifying Jesus Christ in the world. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to take of Christ what Christ wants to do and to disclose it, reveal it to us. You see, when it comes to mission, we, we don't get to make it up. It's not our mission. It's Christ's mission, and he knows what he wants to do. And so the great task that is before us is to hear the Holy Spirit, that we might discover the mission of Christ among us. Right here. Maybe not so far away, maybe not in our neighborhood, but not so far away. What is Christ up to in our midst, within our sphere of influence, within our circle of friends, the people that we work with, go to school with, live near, are in community with? The great call is to hear the Spirit and to discover the mission of Christ and then to join in his mission. To join Jesus in what he's already doing, the process of renewal as opposed to trying to make mission happen ourselves. You know, just trying to make it happen. And what that leads to is frustration. And if that's your mindset, you know, if you've been hearing this series of Missio Christian, your mindset is, well, gosh, yeah, I gotta go out and make it happen. You're headed for guilt. Because in and of yourselves, you can't make it happen. You can't manufacture mission. It's a God thing. And when we try to take it into our own hands and make it happen, we're going to be frustrated because it's not going to work out the way God wants it to work out. And then we're going to feel guilty because it's not working out well. And you're working from a place of religion instead of from the place of the gospel. I mean, what if that family that I referenced earlier, what if their methodology, instead of trying to just hear the spirit whenever he spoke, was to stop every time there's a kid sitting on a curb? Would that have been more fruitful or more frustrating? Probably more frustrating. Probably would her lot of teenagers say, get the out of my face. <laughs> I mean, is that how we're supposed to live life? Just kind of hodgepodging? Or do we believe in a God who is strategic and present? Do we believe in a God who's numbered everyone's hairs on their head and knows when a sparrow falls and says we're of much greater value than many sparrows? We believe in a God who is strategic, history shows us, and who is present, the Bible tells us. So why do we need spirit-led intentionality? What is at stake 
What is at stake is whether or not our lives will be a part of God's plan or merely our plan. And what we realize in that statement is that God created us for purpose and that God intends that your life should count for something. Your life should count for something, the glory of God and the purposes of God. And the Spirit of God leads us into the purposes and the plan of God, both salvifically for salvation and practically for mission. The Spirit of God leads us into salvation in the gospel and then leads us practically in the implications of our salvation in the gospel. And the beauty of us who have been saved, the beauty of having been made new is that Christ lives in us. This can't be some churchy saying for us. This is some real, inexplicable, mystical thing that Christ lives in us. The Bible's not lying when it says that in some real, meaningful, supposed to be transformative way. Christ is in us. And part of what that means is that Christ wants to live his life through us. He's in us. He wants to live his life, his mission, the expression and explanation of who he is through us. That requires that we hear from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus who leads us. So how do we experience and practice Spirit-led intentionality? Well, I would say on a broad level that learning this is part of the adventure and the mystery of the Christian life. That it's not automatic. It's an adventure. And it's part of the mystery of the Christian life that we we could begin to hear the Spirit of God. You see, what we want, what we want is 10 easy steps to being led by the Spirit. I, I guarantee that's a book. I haven't looked it up on Google or Amazon, but that has got to be a book because we want that desperately. I should write that book. <laughs> we desperately want that. 10 easy steps to being led by the Spirit. But here's why I won't write that book. Because to me, it seems more organic and mystical than that. There's a process of discovery. To me, it seems more relational, more organic, life-oriented, and mystical than 10 easy steps. There's this lifelong process of discovering how to hear the voice of God. We, We have a theology that says God is present and that God speaks. Well, what if you had a theology that said God doesn't want to speak to you? I mean, are you here today and you don't believe that the Spirit of God wants to speak to you? What kind of theology is that? 
You have a mute God who doesn't speak? That's not who the Bible explains God to be. We have a theology that says God is infinitely and intimately concerned with our lives and the expression of them. And he's able and willing to speak into them. How do we do that? Well, certainly prayer and Bible reading are indispensable in that process. You don't even hope to do that unless your life involves prayer and Bible reading. The the Bible is the grammar of God. The Bible is the voice of God. It's the word of God. And so what God says to you will never contradict the Bible. It will always be in consonance with the Bible. We begin to learn the voice of God when we read the grammar of God. You want to begin to learn the spirit, you need to be in the Bible and you need to be in prayer. Prayer is communing with God. How do you know someone's voice? You're you're near. You're within earshot. Prayer is coming within earshot of God. Prayer and Bible reading are indispensable in learning to hear the voice of the Spirit. But it is not read these verses, pray this prayer, and voila. That is not how it works. It is rather cultivating a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit that involves prayer and Bible reading, but it is a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. And then after that, it is a process of trial and error. It just is. You see, when it comes to hearing the Holy Spirit, we're going to make mistakes. And let me tell you, church, we need to be okay with that. You need to be okay with yourself when you mishear or you hear wrong or you don't hear. And we need to be okay with each other when we make mistakes. Okay? This is a lifelong, mystical process of relationship with God. God is infallible and his word is infallible. We're not. We're going to make mistakes. We need to decide right now that we're okay with that. But that becomes part of the learning process. So you think you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you. Maybe for you that's audible. Bonus. (laughs) Maybe it's not. Maybe it's this sense. But you think you hear the Spirit of God and so you go do something you're like, oh, nope, that wasn't it. I can't tell you how many times I've done that in my life. You see, but then the next time you think you hear the Spirit of God again and and, and you go and you do it and you're like, fruit, beauty, renewal, mission, Christ glorified, that was it. That was his voice. Okay, this is what it wasn't. This is what it is. I'm beginning to learn through trial and error. Those of you who are intentional about mission, who are trying to live life on mission, you get what I'm saying. Because you know that you need the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. You're wanting to be a witness in culture. You're intentionally on mission. You know you need the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. So you know what I'm talking about, this process of discovery. On the other hand, those of you who are not 
living life on mission. Your mission is to please yourself. You're concerned about your plan. This seems totally alien to you. You want us to go back to 10 easy steps to being led by the Holy Spirit. But what you need to do is cultivate a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. that is directed by humble submission before God of your will and your agenda. Jesus led his disciples not too far away, nearby, but he led them way outside of their comfort zone in order that Christ might renew a very tormented man. Next week, we'll look at demonic opposition and demonic possession. The week after, we'll look at Christ's victory over that in the Bible and in our culture now. But for this week, I want us to be asking ourselves as a church, as individuals, who around us is tormented? Maybe it doesn't look just like this, but but who around us is tormented? They might not live in your neighborhood, but they're not too far away. They might seem a little foreign, a little unclean. Maybe they're just sitting on the side of a bridge and they're desperate. How is the Spirit leading you? Lord, we ask that you'd open our ears to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We want to be led into mission for your glory. We want to live for your purposes and your plan. Lord, do a a work of humility in us. Christ, you implored the churches in Revelation to hear what the Spirit had to say. Cause us to hear what the Spirit is saying. Lord, have mercy on us for the things that would clutter our lives and our hearts and stop up our ears. Show us to reorganize and to prioritize, to put you back on the throne from which we could hear you say, I am making all things new. Show us how to be a part of that, Lord. Sometimes in my own life, It helps me to hear the Spirit when I get myself in a posture of praise and submission. I will with my physical body. When I'm desperate to hear God, I will kneel or I'll get on my face. I find that when when I force my physical self to do this, that my spiritual self often will follow. Maybe you need to do that today. Anytime we rejoice in the cross and the gospel, we hear better the voice of the Spirit. Communion is here to rejoice in the cross and the gospel. Maybe you need hands laid upon you. You need some sort of help or deliverance. Any sort of help, the prayer team is here. 